Let's go bottle question. Mercy. Elias, this is an easy one. Okay, let's start with a low ball. What are you currently reading in the Bible as a personal devotions, and how has that been affecting your heart? Cool. <laughs> so I guess I got to be honest, for the past week or so, I've been preparing for this Bible ordination, uh, elder exa- uh, examination, right? So uh, one area that I was weak in, uh, in terms of just uh, the books of, those, of the Bible would be the minor prophets. So to be honest with you, if you're asking me whether I'm reading any particular book for my personal devotion, personal being not tied to any of the things that I'm doing, whether that's ministerially or whether that's something that I'm studying upon, you know, that in the past week or so, I haven't been, and I don't have any book that I'm studying for my personal devotion. But I guess I've been devotionally studying and reading, just going through the minor prophets, uh, though it's still somewhat, again, hard to kind of like grasp the historical uh, details of the minor prophets, but just a theme to answer the question of how that has been helpful and how that has been personally uh, edifying for me is just the theme of how God is faithful in spite of God's people going through judgment. You know, and we can see this, I think, in one of the uh, books of Habakkuk. One of the minor prof- one of the books in the minor prophets is Habakkuk, where he was talking about, he was complaining to God, why would God use this uh, Chaldeans, right, for the purpose of his kingdom purposes and his kingdom work. And the prophet Habakkuk was complaining to God, it's like, why would you use them and not us? And you would let your people suffer. So that also gives a perspective, and that has been pretty encouraging at how God would use people, right, who might not be of the church uh, to his kingdom purposes, and for the people of God uh, to persevere and to endure, knowing if God could use the Chaldeans, God could use uh, sufferings and also uh, the death of Christ, ultimately, for the edification of his people. Where in the Bible would you go to? for a teaching on marriage and divorce? A teaching on divorce, uh, Matthew 19, I think that would be a text for that. And I think for marriage, we can go to Genesis chapter 224, which is the first institution of marriage between a male and a female. And I think Ephesians 5 is also very helpful in the sense of how a husband is to relate with their wives and how wives are to submit to their husbands, all under the grounds, on on the grounds of how Christ loved the church and how the church is, is to submit to Christ. So I think Ephesians 5, Matthew 19, Genesis chapter 2, Mark chapter 10 would be texts that are relevant regarding divorce and marriage. Great. Name me, um, name me the covenants in the Bible. Give me the addresses for it, where in the Bible you find it, and why is it beneficial for our souls to know them? So I think it would be helpful to first define what a covenant is. And I think uh, the Westminster Confession uh, grounds all its argument based on this, that uh, the distance between God and us is too great, right? That God has to voluntarily condescend in order to be able to commune and to communicate to his people. And the primary way, if not the only way, from which God communes with his people is by way of covenant. I think that's in Westminster uh, Confession chapter 5 on providence, Right? And I think in speaking of the covenants and how God relates with his people throughout redemptive history, whether that's in the Old Testament, whether that's in the New Testament, we can see this in how God relates to his people in two main covenants. 
The first covenant as the covenant of works, and the second covenant being the covenant of grace. And we can see how progressively in the Old Testament is the unfolding of the covenant of grace. But before we get into the covenants of grace, that will kind of like see the beginnings of the ages and the epochs by which God makes and instituted his covenant with his people, it is first, I think it's, it's proper to start with the first covenant that God instituted with man, which was in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, with Adam uh, as a covenant of life or covenant of works, whereby if Adam were to obey the stipulations that God had established to Adam, he would get the covenant blessings, and if he were to disobey, he would receive the covenant curses. And we could see that Adam here disobeyed, right? And therefore, uh, Adam and all his posterity and all his uh, people that is going to be in Adam, all of us included, uh, are going is under the curse of the covenant of works. But God is pleased to kind of like make a second covenant, namely the covenant of grace, through which God, uh, in his mercy, though he doesn't have to, uh, is pleased to show mercy to these people, though they don't deserve it, though they are uh, deserving of wrath because of their, by virtue of their birth in Adam. So first, we see this covenant in, we see that unfolding in Genesis 3.15, which is the Proto-Evangelium which is the first uh, sign of how God was gracious and merciful to his people. And then we could see this unfold in the story with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, where God preserves a people, though Noah was not more holy than any of the people there. And God preserved uh, Noah by judging the world with the flood. And Noah was rescued in the Noah's Ark. And then from Noah, we get into how Genesis 3.15 and Genesis chapter 9 fully unfolds in the covenant with Abraham. And that is in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17, where, uh, where Genesis chapter 12 is the initiation of the covenant, where God uh, promises to Abraham that uh, he, will be his God, uh, he will be God, and there will be people that will be of the descendants of Abraham that will be God's people, and that God would promise a land, that God would also promise uh, land, uh, the, the nation, right, and how the, through the descendants of Abraham, it's going to be the blessing to all the nations. So that's Genesis 12, 15, 17. And then from uh, Abraham, from the covenant with Abraham, uh, we go to the covenant of Moses. That's going to be in Exodus chapter 19 to 24, particularly in the institution of the law. And this is where, uh, through Moses, God would also institute his law to his people, and God would reveal what it means for the people of God to obey God and to display what it means to be a blessing to all the nations and to be inclusive of all the nations, to be God's covenant people. And then uh, fifth one is the covenant that God instituted with David in Second Samuel chapter 17, or chapter 7, right, in which God would institute a kingdom, not only just a people, but a people with a kingdom whereby there's a king who's going to subdue the people, who's going to govern the people with righteousness and justice in the person of David. And this is, and then to the next covenant, which is the new covenant instituted in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in Ezekiel chapter 37 and 36, where God would also promise that God's people would be given a new heart. Right? Because we see the pattern of the people in the Old Testament that they are always disobedient and they were always rebellious. No matter how much laws are written, no, ma no matter how much judgments are given upon the people of God, yet they needed new hearts. Right? And through Genesis 31 and Ezekiel 37, this is where it foreshadows uh, the new covenant in Christ and the Spirit being poured out on the people of God uh, in the new covenant. Where in the, where in the New Testament do you find... 
Christ instituting his covenant. But in the New Testament, it, it, where is it explicitly said? Well, we could see how the Spirit was first poured out in Acts chapter 2, right? That's the pouring out of the Spirit. But Christ, I think it's throughout the way that God would, the cross and the resurrection and his ascension and his pouring out at Pentecost. Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 6. Okay. This covenant in my, new covenant in my blood. Okay. So okay, that was a, just the one, the one piece there. Cool. But yeah. uh, very extensive, very great. You've been studying. This guy's been studying, huh? Studying, man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Give him a applause. That's good. I had the Westminster Confession of Faith for breakfast, dude. Yeah, that's right. That was yummy. 25 meetings. That's right. Um, hmm. What is the message of Romans 1? Romans 1, that God is righteous. And that, uh, again, Romans 1, 2, 3 unfolds as how God's Wrath is shown to all people, and that people suppress the truth, though they know the truth, and God reveals himself in general revelation through nature, and God, and pe the people of God have no excuse, not the people of God. I mean, everyone, uh, if they are to rebel against God, if they are to be under sin, that they are, they have no excuse uh, for their sins. Um, what's the main point of Galatians? Name me a verse that, that captures that main point, and how would you use it pastorally? So Jenna, the book of Galatians is about justification by faith alone. And in the context of the church in Galatia, that there was a group of people called the Judaizers. Is that how you kind of like pronounce it? And that these are the people who were Christians, but yet they understood how once you have been justified by faith, you continue your life by faith and works. And therefore, and this works part is being translated and being displayed in how they are to keep the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, whereby they are to be circumcised still. So I think Paul was admonishing and also encouraging these people at Galatia that you are justified by faith and not by faith plus works, that if you begun your faith, uh, if you begun your faith, uh, again, by faith, right? If salvation begins by faith, who are you to say that now you are to continue it by works? So I think Galatians 3 would be a part that uh, summarizes the message of Galatians, that you are justified by faith, and that you're not uh, faith plus works. And that how I would use Galatians pastorally is to also uh, admonish Christians to know that if you begun your salvation by faith, you are to continue it by faith. And that there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more or make God love you less through the struggles of the flesh that you would still encounter in the Christian life. And how it is uh, a reminder of the bedrock of our salvation that God in his mercy through Christ and in Christ, has bestowed mercy unto undeserving people like us. And therefore, we are to live by faith, and God is the one who perseveres if he is the one who begins our, sal our, our salvation, our faith. Maybe one more Bible question before we move to theology. You want to go ahead? One more each? Or? Just you, maybe. Or okay. yeah, I could do it. No, I could do it. Um, give me the three large divisions of the Old Testament. How, how are they divided? And name me one book from each division and one part of that book that specifically has a Christ fulfillment. 
So the Old Testament was divided, or it, it's known as the Tanakh, and it's, it stands for the Torah, the Ketuvim, and the Netuvim, right? And did I get the... You, You're ne- close, you're good. Yeah, okay. Netuvim, <laughs> yes. So the Tanakh, right? Uh, the T being the Torah, which is the fi- first five books of the Old Testament, the Netuvim, or the Netuvim. Nevi'im. 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 Right, that's, that's the, the, the part of the prophetic books, uh, which are the major prophets and the minor prophets, which consist major prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And we could argue that Daniel should be included in there. But I think classically and traditionally, Daniel was included in the Torah, Netuvim, Ketuvim, Ketuvim. Ketuvim, there you go, uh, which is the writings, right? And this, is, this include the, uh, the poetic books and... Uh, such as uh, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the wisdom books, wisdom literatures, the historical narratives, uh, uh, being the three major divisions. So to the question of how each book in each division points to Christ. Just, just one book from each division. One book, okay. So in the Torah, so I'll take the easy one, Genesis <laughs> chapter 315, right, where, 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 where they were clothed, though they were supposedly deserving of uh, death, spiritual death and physical death, and how that clothed, the clothing that got provided for fallen uh, Adam, right, was foreshadowing of how Christ was going to be the sacrifice that God is going to provide for his people as a way of atoning for their sins. And in the prophetic books, uh, we see how Ezekiel 37, how God would raise up people, uh, the imagery here, the vision that Ezekiel had was a valley of dry bones, of just bones, and then God giving life unto them and giving flesh unto them. And this is how it points to how we were all these bones, right? That we were all born dead in our sins and trespasses. And therefore, God, through his spirit, right, on the basis of the works of Christ and the person of Christ, now the spirit is indwelling in people, in us, to make us alive in Christ. And now we are new creatures and we are no longer uh, the old self, but we are made new. We are raised up. And the resurrection here, I think, is foreshadowed, right? And I think in the historical books, in the Psalms, right, Psalm 110 is a prophetic uh, messianic uh, expectation of the future of how uh, Christ is going to be seated at the right hand of God as it was first instituted to David, right? So Jesus is the greater David, the fulfillment of David, who is going to reign and who, uh, again, death, resurrection, ascension, and then where he is seated at the right hand of God, Hebrews, and he is reigning, interceding for his people until he returns to judge the dead and the living. Great. Let's move on to theological questions. Hallelujah. (laughs) Very good. We'll start us off with a historical question. Who was Martin Luther and why was he important? Easy one, right? I've never heard of Martin Luther. (laughs) <laughs> Martin Luther was the first uh, guy who, well, 95 theses, right? <laughs> he was the one who began the Reformation, but I think an important note here about Luther and the Reformation in 1517 was that he did not have, in, uh, he didn't intend for the Reformation to be one that is separate from the Catholic Church. Right. He was trying to reform the church, but because of the Roman Catholic Church that denied his theses, and he was uh, the, the church being the one uh, against what Luther was doing, 
and then Luther had to, uh, the development of the Reformation, Protestantism, and how from Luther to Calvin and to uh, these men, you know, where we stand upon the Protestant tradition uh, started by Luther, I guess. And of course, a few other people during Luther's time uh, that developed the story hmm. into that. How many wills are there in Christ? Two wills. Good. Because wills... Well, let me, let me on that uh, Christological discussion, explain the incarnation to us. Name one Christological heresy that was dealt with in history and one scriptural proof that could be used to deal with it. You all thought I was going to be the meaner one, huh? <laughs> First question again, Tezar. Uh, explain their incarnation. Okay. What is incarnation? And name one Christological heresy that was dealt with in history and, and, and Bible proof. Okay. So incarnation is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God taking upon himself a human nature. And Philippians 2 would be a, a relevant text here. And I think in our discussion, the extra Calvinisticum, right? And I think that is uh, the technical term by which... Uh, Christ took upon a human nature by way of addition, not by way of losing his divinity or by way of emptying himself. And that's a, a, a misreading of that of Philippians 2. But as a way of addition, therefore, Christ being one person, yet with two uh, natures, the human nature and the divine nature. Right? So that's kind of like the, the basic one of uh, Christ's divine and human nature. And I think a Christological heresy would be Arianism, whereby God, Jesus, was not eternal, that Jesus was not uh, the eternal Son of God, where, when, uh, that Jesus was created. And I think a text uh, very uh, relevant for this one would be John chapter 1, where in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I think uh, Arianism would fully develop into what we see Mormonism today, the Jehovah Witnesses today, whereby they would also have a different reading and a different translation to John chapter 1. And your third question, Tazar, sorry. You got it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Does God change? Nope. <laughs> Solid. Malachi 3.6. Define divine simplicity and why is it important divine simplicity is very important because it views that there is nothing in god that causes god to be god therefore everything that is god is god right and therefore everything about his properties are identical to his essence because that being god in his ad intra god in his essence apart from creation is simple Right? It's divine simplicity just means that God is simple in the, in the way that the confession words it, that God is a spirit, uh, invisible, who is composed of no parts, who is made without parts. And this is important because if God is made of parts, that means uh, there is parts in God that is lesser than the one that holds all the parts. Right? Therefore, God has to be simple in, in his eternality, if I could say, in his essence, apart from creation, given it in himself that God is simple. How do you explain that in 15 seconds to somebody who doesn't know any Christian lingo? 
So God, if he is truly simple, he is not dependent on anything. And he does not need anything from his creation or creatures to be who he is. And therefore, if God made you, it is not because God is lonely, but because God is gracious to create you to be in communion relationship with him. Very cool. <laughs> okay. We're, okay. When, when someone says this statement, using the Bible to defend the Bible is circular reasoning. Okay? If somebody says that statement... Explain how you'd respond to them, but I want you to explain it in two ways. One, explain it to us, me and Gray. So, which theologian would you use? What coined terminology would you use for that? And the second explanation is your explanation to this made-up person who said it. Does that make sense? Okay. First part, uh, presuppositionalism. And this, I think, is coined or not coined or maybe systematized by, by Van Til. Right? That the way of uh, doing apologetics or responding to people or just doing defending our faith in general is the view that nobody is neutral, that no worldview is neutral, that all people comes with a worldview with basic presuppositions about what life is, who God is, what is the purpose of life, and what is good and what is bad. And therefore, how to respond to people who say uh, that presuppositionalism is circular reasoning. Or people, let's say, in people who hold to a classical view of apologetics, and these would be people like, weirdly, R.C. Sproul, and my professors in Biola, like uh, William Lane Craig, and J.P. Moreland, you know, and these people would say that circle reasoning, right, because you're already presuming something, you are already holding on to the conclusion before you argue for the conclusion. And I think the way to respond to that is to say that uh, man, our sin is so deep and is so prevalent that it has noetic effects that our minds and our souls and how we uh, view logic and how we uh, determine what's right, what's wrong, what's valuable, not valuable is also tainted by sin. And therefore, there is no way from which we can argue for God or argue for uh, the purpose of life from a neutral standpoint. And therefore... Uh, Circular, not taken negatively, but circular to take that we are to be sensitive and we are to be aware of our presuppositions and let our presuppositions show itself. Right? So I think the main argument, I might be wrong in this one, but I think the main argument of presuppositionalism is that we are to argue on the basis of your presuppositions. And we argue that Christian apologetics done in the presuppositional uh, school of thought would argue that if you are to lay bare people's presuppositions, it is only the Christian presuppositions revealed in Scripture as the one who can make sense of life coherently and how we can understand uh, the meaning of what's good and bad from a position whereby we are not God and we are fallen creatures. Explain, and the third part, explaining that to that person. To that person. Briefly. Briefly, I think I would uh, start by, by, by going into uh, showing that person that that person has presuppositions that that person holds to. And it will be our job, the church's job, my job, to kind of like show what their presuppositions are. You know, and from there, we go on to say that, look, if you uh, hold on to the presuppositions, look at the implications to that of how you would understand 
I'm going to ask a question that is theological, but it might move us to practical theology or philosophy of ministry. Is that all right? So someone comes up to you and says, all this doctrine, man, I just love Jesus. I don't care about doctrine, church history. You know, I just, I just, I just love people and I really love them. And so this, this heady stuff, I mean, what's it good for? Does it feed people? It doesn't feed people. What do you say to that? I think that was your question. Oh, really? Wow. Nice. Presbyterianism. I think I would start and begin with uh, a saying that, again, this, this, this person is a Christian, right? Yes. Professing to be a Christian. Professing Christian. I love okay. Jesus, but who cares yep. about theology? Right. So I would say that that just doesn't make sense, and that is illogical, for you can't know someone if you don't really know who that person is. Therefore, studying uh, deep truths, truths about God and scripture, uh, doctrine, systematic theology, biblical theology, and how church history has kind of like understood who God is and how God has revealed to us throughout uh, history is important because that is the way from which we know who the God we worship. And if we truly love someone, if I love someone, I better know who that person is, uh, everything about that person, right? And that, uh, again, I think Colossians chapter 1 verse 10 talks about how Christian growth is also growth in the knowledge of God and not just this uh, spiritual feeling where you feel like God loves you. But I, want, I would want to go into what does that look like and what does that mean? What does that love mean? How is that love different than how, you know, uh, different versions of how culture would define what love is? What's the second part of the question, Ray? I think that's it. Yeah, it's good. Okay. So we'll move into practical theology yeah. at this point. I think, I think it's okay. So bear with us another few minutes. We start a little bit late. So we'll, we'll, this is the last section. Um, okay, so from what you know about Jay Adams and his position on Christian counseling, what could be the dangers of that and what could be the benefits of that? I think the dangers of counseling, right? I haven't gotten too much into Jay Adams, but uh, from what I've read about him briefly, I think the dangers of going to counseling and going to like the details of counseling, psychological impacts and all these categories. Uh, I would start with the dangers and I would start and I would end with the benefits. I think the dangers of that it was, is that we would undermine the truths revealed about the human person in scripture, right? Uh, let's say if psychology has categories for how people are affected by the environment, right? Though I know that that's not how Jay Adams uh, views how people grow and how people are affected by their environment. But that could easily undermine original sin of how we are born with a disposition towards evil and against God, right? And no matter what the environment is, and we've had these discussions of whether we should put people at Christian schools or not, right? Though this discussion is relevant, but I feel like in terms of understanding how people grow and how people grow out of their, in their sin, right? And that's something that is primarily uh, foundational to them. And I think that will be an example of how that will be a danger, though if we use it responsibly, I don't think we would fall into those dangers. I think the benefits, on the other hand, is to understand how God has created us to be who we are, right? Uh, scientific data, psychological data uh, can be helpful insofar that they do not replace the authority of Scripture in how the church is supposed to function and how we're supposed to grow and how we're supposed to battle addiction, how we're supposed to battle uh, with uh, deep scars from uh, the past that we might not realize. But I think a benefit of that is to help us categorize and uh, go through kind of like this uh, 
and navigate through our human feelings and understand how are we supposed to deal and approach those things. A remorseful church member, so a professing Christian, says and comes to you, I'm really struggling with homosexuality. How would you respond to him or her? I think every person that struggles with homosexuality uh, foundationally must be treated case by case, but I will answer that generally and see what are some of the general uh, approaches to that. I think first, uh, it really depends on the person struggling with this. I would want to know whether this person, uh, whether this person falls into the category of struggling with homosexuality and wanting to exercise homosexual and practice homosexual uh, relationships. Or on the other hand, a person who, again, struggles with homosexuality, but knows and accepts the fact that it is a it is not the way from which God ordains relationship and marriage to be right and how these two categories will kind of like form how I think we should approach these persons but again to go a little bit further uh, I think uh, homosexuality must be uh, taken seriously but at the same time to be put also in this category whereby homosexuality is one among many other sins as well, right? That it is not a sin uh, that is uh, the, 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 the chief sin of all the other uh, sins that we all struggle here. So I think uh, to put that perspective in mind is also important, that homosexuality is one among many sins that can manifest in a sinner's life. And how we deal with that also uh, is relevant of how we understand how that, where that person is and what that person and I think the solution, generally speaking, is to know that I think a person struggling with homosexuality would uh, fear the, the possibility of being alone for the rest of their lives. And I think pastorally, we should remind this person right, that as, church, as the church, as people, as members of the covenant community, that that person is never alone, that we have a true groom, which is Christ, and the church is his bride, and therefore we are to embrace this person. I think this is also leads to the other point whereby it's not just talking to this person, but talking to the church and how the church is supposed to be more sensitive and more open and more uh, not taking homosexuality lightly and to kind of like joke around about it, but as a way to kind of like uh, uh, serve these people and love these people who might be struggling about this and might not be able to confess and I think the first step to that is to bring this person to a place where he is comfortable or where she is comfortable to uh, talk about it comfortably and to have that uh, safe environment whereby that person can mm. come out of the closet. Um, a young believer who has very little Christian understanding and knows zero Christian lingo is dating a non-Christian. A young Christian is dating a non-Christian. How would you counsel that person. First, before, I, before getting into the relationship in itself, I would also make sure that this person is being discipled well. And not, not I, we, right? The, the church is responsible to disciple this person well, to make sure that this person is growing in the knowledge of who God is and it, uh, to grow in the knowledge of who God is and who God is for him or her, right? And from there, uh, this involves going through the through theology, sound doctrine, what does it mean uh, for how doctrine impacts everything about life, 
So I think that's the first part. The second part, in terms of the relationship, I would be very cautious. I would definitely warn this person that if this other person that she or he is dating is not a Christian, it will end up being very messy because ultimately this other person, if they are going to pursue marriage, of which they should, from the first day that they are dating, you know, they, uh, they will come across paths and back to presuppositionalism, right? Where they would have two very different presuppositions of life. They would have two very different sets of values whereby they won't be able to reconcile, right? If, if that Christian, if this person is truly a Christian, of which this person is to grow unto obedience unto the Lord, and that person would struggle a lot with that. So I would warn that person. And third, invite the, the, the non-Christian to come to church and hopefully that person so one last one, follow up on that. What if this Christian who dates non-Christian, what if it works pragmatically? Does that make sense? What if it practically, like, in a like, day-to-day basis, like, they're so far off from their from holding fast to their worldviews that they kind of end up having this, like, does that make sense? Uh, if it, and they say, no, it works fine. Like, things are working just fine. How would you respond to that? Why is it still not a good idea? I think uh, generally and... Again, this is not talking about how I would communicate these things to them, but sure. just like principally uh, and theoretically, I think I would do my best to warn them that it's only temporary that it's going to work. That's route number one. Or route number two is to say that you're not being a consistent Christian. Right? That if you are to be a consistent Christian, if you are to grow in reading the Word and to obey what the Word says about, uh, about money, about relationships, about family, about marriage, about how you as a guy or how you as a girl would be a potential husband and a wife, uh, a wife to submit to the husband, a husband to lead the wife in righteousness and holiness, that you wouldn't be able to do this if the other person that you're marrying does not believe in the same things that you believe in, Mm. primarily about God. And I think to emphasize the death and life difference, there is a a very huge divide Mm. between a a dead person, moral, but not in Christ, and a live person, I think. Mm-hmm. Hold on, that especially. Yeah, good. Eternally speaking. Yeah. Or, Regeneration yeah. and so so yeah. One last question, maybe. One from one from you, one from me, then we'll, we'll be done. Okay. So two last questions. Why would you baptize your kids? Because it's biblical. <laughs> what are the the ministerial implications of infant baptism? It's just water. Someone's like really skeptical here. Just water, I, man. Sprinkling babies. What's up with that? I love your quick, like, one. What in it? Huh? I, I love that, like. Oh, okay. I, I, okay. <laughs> yeah. So Good. this is this is particularly right. talking about infant baptism, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think number one is biblical in in the strict sense of let's say it's. I think again, there's just two very major views on this, but again, uh, our view and my personal view, uh, looking at. Genesis chapter 17, where the sign of circumcision is to follow the, the, the promise that God made with Abraham, uh, is mirrored or continues to how it's applied in Colossians chapter 2, where a person is to be baptized, and uh, not only to the parent, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 to 39, not only the parents, but the promise is also for the children. Right? And we see in other instances in the book of Acts where uh, the whole household is baptized at the confession of the parents. So I think first reason, biblical. I think second reason is to be consistent with our covenant view or of, of how God relates with his people. 
that baptism does not regenerate. That's, that's the extreme view, which is wrong. Second view, baptism also does not verify the fact that you are now a professing believer, if I could say that. If you're like a true believer, part of the invisible church, that's not the role of baptism. But baptism primarily, in our view, in uh, how we view it covenantally, is that baptism is the identification of this person into the covenant community of God, which is the visible church. And therefore, uh, I would baptize uh, babies in the sense that now these People, non-communicant members, are now part of the covenant community. And how baptism is very important in the sense that it does not, we we don't say that these children that we've baptized are now Christians per se, but we are saying that these children are now part of the covenant community in whom and through whom uh, and for whom uh, the church is supposed to care for and to also nurture to hopefully improve baptism in the language of the confession into a saving knowledge of God when they are communicant members. One last question for me, and then a closing simple question, okay? Um, What do you think is the heart longing of somebody who embraces the health, wealth, prosperity gospel? What is the heart longing there, and how would you minister the true gospel to that heart longing? What approach, rather than just go waving a finger, I think the heart longing, one of them, of those people who are in the health, wealth uh, doctrine or beliefs is pleasure at the most bare sense that these people want nothing to do with uh, a hard life, suffering, right? And secondly, I think a little bit deeper is their desire for security, right, of which all of us also long for. And their, uh, perhaps their desire for significance, that by being a Christian, if God could bless me more, if I could have more, I could be more significant, I could be more secure, and therefore I could live a more comfortable life by giving unto God, because God is going to multiply my givings unto God. Right? So I think that's kind of like the, the, the underlying heart desires of that person. And how we should minister uh, to this person is to say that all these things are temporary again. Right? That this is not, if you're a, a, a professing Christian, that this is not what is revealed in Scripture. That's number one. And number two, uh, you wouldn't be able to experience Christ because Christ suffered for you. And if you uh, don't have any grid or uh, a view from which you can uh, make sense of suffering and to also uh, experience the joy in suffering, you wouldn't be able to experience what it means to have your best life now. Right? So I think that's kind of like a very uh, superficial view of life. And I think how we should admi- uh, uh, minister to this person is to show that the gospel is deeper than this person could ever think and know. And how our best life now will be later forever. So I think that would be like, you know, their view of like, oh, my view, my life is best now. Our view is like our lives are best later, eternally future with Christ. Any more from you or? All right, one, one last one for me, and then you'll walk out for two, three minutes as we talk. So why do you have a desire to become an elder? That's, that's, that's a hard question. Uh, first, I think it, it 
foundationally, a, a, apart from all the other reasons, you know, it would be foundationally just a deep-seated desire, a deep-seated calling that I think the Lord has placed uh, in my heart uh, three, four years back, you know, three, four, five, six years, at the end of college, right, where I think uh, I was saved from the church. You know, I grew up thinking I was a Christian. I grew up in the prosperity and wealth uh, church. I was growing up in the moralistic, uh, gung-ho charismatic and gung-ho moralism kind of thing. You know, so the first time that I tasted the gospel, right, and how sweet that is, and going through the book of Romans, knowing that I deserve nothing, and yet God has given me everything in Christ. You know, that opens up spring forth of desire to minister to people who are still perhaps in the church and still perhaps think that they're Christians and yet they have no knowledge of what the true gospel is and how actually the true gospel is sweeter than they think it is, you know, and that uh, the true gospel is one that sweeter, right? It's, it's something that is, brings a deeper joy you know, I think secondly is also uh, the community of believers in, in, in encouraging me and affirming me. You know, I think uh, Gray would be one of the uh, key people here to also keeping encouraging me to pursue uh, the ministry calling. So I guess knowing the internal and external, you know, and, and seeing those things, you know, it, it gives me a desire for that. You know, I think third, it will also be just my desire to... Uh, study and to also uh, doctrines don't make me bored right doctrines make me want to study more and I want people to know more I want people to taste uh, the beauties of the gospel that that it has been provided in Christ and I think fourth uh, our city needs it and I think we have a lot of churches in Jakarta and yet majority of these churches I've been hop I've been hopping around churches as well before CCC came into existence and uh, it's, it's not an encouraging picture, so to say. And I think we need churches, uh, though CCC is not perfect, but I think CCC would be an example of how churches should be. You did well until, until that sentence. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think CCC would be an example of how a church should be, where it's vibrantly communal and yet deeply uh, doctrinal and rigorous in that kind of sense. So I think those are four reasons among many other reasons I can think of of why I think it is the Lord who is placing this desire in me and not me mustering myself. Amen. Thank you, Al. Do you mind stepping out for one minute? You guys give a round of applause. That was not easy. We keep this on, or I think it's okay. When it's leaves, let's close it. Uh, we can just talk about positives and then concerns. Everything was great. Um, biblical knowledge was great. Matthew twenty-six wasn't a big deal. I know he knew it. Um, there was some nuancing that I think I would have worded differently with the homosexuality question and other things, but I think mm -hmm. at the heart of it, it was he was trying to be sensitive and kind, but also faithful to the scripture. So aside from that, I'm good. Yeah, Go. absolutely. I, I, I was actually a little bit surprised at how doctrinally he answered everything. 
because I thought that he would answer it more in a pastoral, counselly kind of way. But I was, which I, I, you know, I was good, but I, I wish I heard a little bit of the counselling. But overall, just fantastic job. Was it It was an exemplary exam. Just thinking back about the Presbyterian exams that I've sat through in the States and, and the UK, that was probably one of the best ones. Awesome. All right, let's let him in. That was quick. Really? Okay. <laughs> I mean, all right. Oh, we have, let's vote. Aye, aye. Okay. Let's Nor- give a round of applause. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in a Presbyterian setting, normally there's like 50 of them, so the voting process is more right. tenuous. But There's just two of us, so. Yeah. Ella, I had to convince Gray. I was begging him to pass you. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think we both are very happy at all your answers. I think they were very thorough, uh, surprisingly so. I learned I learned a few new things myself as you're answering some of the questions that I didn't know. So I'm thankful for that. Um, and we're, we're, we're excited about you uh, moving on your way to the written exam and hopefully being an elder here at Covenant City Church. It'll be a privilege for us to have you. Great. Yeah. We just need to set up an ordination date and all the good stuff. Yeah. So, Al, you pass uh, the floor exam, and then next is the routine examination. Thank you, buddy. Hey, guys. Yeah, yeah. Pray for us. I'll pray. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that um, you've called Elias unto yourself from death into life. You've shown the sinner that he is to himself, and you've exposed his worldview, his heart, that it was far from you, Father, though he grew up in the church. And you've called him to yourself, and by your grace, Father, you died in his place, in Christ Jesus. So, Father, help us now as a church, uh, support Elias, help him as he grow into uh, this calling that you've called him to be, to be a shepherd under the greater shepherd that is Christ Jesus. Help us as um, elders to be caring for one another, to see that this is not uh, something to lord over each other or over our members, Father, but really we are just rallying each other on as sinners, um, encouraging other sinners in the way so, Father, help us rest in the grace of Jesus Christ and help us now uh, be this church that can honor and help Elias in his way as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being a part of this and enjoy lunch. Thank you. <laughs>